0: Um, I hope that uh, oh, my name's Anthony, by the way, the pastor of your Valley Hope. Um, I hope that you've heard by now um, that several days ago, uh, Andrew Brunson uh, was released, he was the the courts ordered him, released house arrest uh, in Turkey. So Andrew Brunson is now out of prison. Um, yes. They said that uh, it was due to health reasons. Um, it's unclear how much of that is, is a real motivation and how much of that is political cover. He, he. as far as we know, the only health problem he has is that he has lost a lot of weight in prison because of the circumstances. Um, but we are obviously very happy and excited that he is out of prison, we would view that as. Um, s- step one in the right direction um, and we're not quite sure why that decision came down, it did not look like it was but um, we'll see how things progress, we want to keep praying though uh, because now there's a whole other set of complicated issues for him uh, one being his own safety outside of prison um, and for the safety of his church, Restoration Church, uh, and churches at large in Turkey. So we want to pray that there would be no backlash or unintended consequences that come now. But we are super grateful uh, that he is out of that prison. And um, I'd encourage you just to keep, try to keep your ear out in the news um, for his name and keep praying for him. Feel free to keep contacting your representatives uh, on his behalf. There's now more and more noise being made about consequences for Turkey if they don't let uh, Andrew Brunson go, which which is great. Um, we're going we're gonna to pray uh, to thank God for Andrew's release. Um, but I also, one of the, the reasons that we are so happy um, so happy to see Andrew out of prison is that he gets to be with his wife. Uh, Hopefully he gets to soon see his kids um, who have graduated and gotten married since he is, one of them has graduated and gotten married since he's been in prison. Major life has happened in the past two years and we want to see that family reunited because that's really important to us. Um, In light of that, I didn't want to, to mention that without begging, your invita- and begging you to pray uh, as well for a different uh, set of people whose families are, are ripped apart. Um, right now, roughly, um, and you should be aware of this, there's about 700 kids children of illegal immigrants that are in detention, not detention, in custody, because their parents were in detention. Over half of whom, of those 700, had their parents deported. And it's unclear how these families are going to be reunited. Now, look around this building. Look behind you. Literally, you turn your heads. This is a pretty big room it can hold almost a thousand people if 3 quarters of these seats had children in them that's how many kids we're talking about these are these are children that do not have contact with their mother and or their father I've been hearing and reading the news. And and to be clear, this kind of practice has apparently been going on for 15, 20 years. It's just the numbers are much higher in the past three or four months. This is the first that I knew of it. And I can't help but look at my own children and imagine my one-year-old and my three-year-old, and my six-year-old, taken by strangers who don't speak their language. And I don't have the ability to hold them and comfort them. That is extremely distressing. And, uh, In the environment that we live in, it's tempting to take that fact and to politicize it. Say, because I vote this way or this way, I must feel this way about this thing. And what I want to insist for us is that we are Christians first and foremost. And I, 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 I have... No educated opinions about what to do with a southern border. No idea. You can take whatever position you want on that. But I do know this. God's eye is on these children. And God have mercy on us. If we do not as well. This is a matter of who we are in our Christian identity. Okay? In the history of the Christian church, our numbers exploded because of, not in spite of, but because of our care for the orphan, the poor, and the widow. This is attested in early historical sources. People looked in wonder and confusion at these Christians who would care for people that society cast off. This is part of who we are. This is our identity. If you are a person who regularly reads Scripture, and I hope you are, various points of the year you should be reading in the prophets and one of the most repeated charges that God will bring against Israel is that they have not cared for the poor and the widow and the orphan. This is in the character and nature of God. And when people in power who bear the name of God do not care for the powerless whom God seems particularly and especially to care for, There is an assured response because of the character of God. And that is where we read passages that say things like judgment begins in the house of God. I don't care about your politics. I really don't. You can vote for whatever party you want. But these kids are our kids. We, the people of God, are given special care for the kids that are in this church particularly, but for those who are neglected and in danger and exposed because of their social status. And to be quite honest, many of these families probably go to church on Sundays. Now, you may think of them as lawbreakers or whatever, But these are people who very likely would call themselves Christian. They are our brothers and sisters. These are their children. This is our family. So my invitation to you then is to pray for them, and then figure out what God would have you do on top of that. And I don't know what that is. I don't know what it is for myself. There are organizations that care for these children. You may consider donating to those organizations. I know what the very least that I could do is I, I email my representatives and I said, hey, I have not forgotten that these kids are out there, that this deadline has been passed for these children to be brought back with their parents. And I want you to do something about this. I would say that's the very least that you could do call their office, their local office. It's not that scary, although it freaks me out every time I do it. And I don't know what else I can suggest to you. Now, you may be sitting and saying, why can't you just let us have the Andrew Brunson thing? That was happy. Why this? This is sad. The kingdom has come, and it is still coming. We are we are the joyfully sorrowful people. That is the nature of Scripture. That God is present and we delight in Him. And we mourn over a world that yet groans for His coming. And I want to invite you into the tension of Scripture to be both delighted that God is who He says He is. That He is the reigning Lord over heaven and earth. And also deeply heartbroken. The world is not as he intended it to be. So I want you to have both things. I want you to be happy for Andrew Brunson. I am happy for Andrew Brunson. I'm so thrilled that this happened. And I want you to look at every single child in this church and remember that there are many, many more, not just in this particular scenario, but in many different scenarios who are ripped from their parents. And that should break our hearts. So I want us to pray together for both of these things. If you're willing, would you bow your head and pray with me? Lord Jesus, God, we have so much to thank you and praise you for. Our hearts do not rise in gratitude nearly so often enough. Your generosity to us should provoke us to be perpetually thankful people. God, You have taken care of us in so many ways. You care for Your people. You love Your people. You have covenanted to Your people. And God, we are so, so grateful. There is no one like You, Father. Father, we thank You that we can see that care, that faithfulness in the life of Andrew Brunson. You have sustained him. You have maintained him. You have brought others to his defense because you yourself are acting in his defense. And God, you have relieved him. You have brought him out of prison in ways that we do not even understand. You you shook the jail cell of Paul and Silas. And you brought them out. And you have done the same thing here in ways that we could not have foreseen. And we are so, so grateful. Thank You that our brother is with his wife again. Thank You that he is out of jail. We, God, we pray that You would put Your hand on that house. That You would restore him in his body, in his mind, in his heart. We pray that You would protect him from any further schemes against him. We pray, God, that this whole thing would be used to revitalize and encourage Your church in Turkey. God, bring Your bride to flourishing in Turkey. Let their hope in the Gospel be confirmed again and again, and let them be alive and joyful in their sure hope. And let us be reminded that You, the Lord over heaven and earth, watch over Your people. Oh you know, God, we turn to you and bear to you our sorrows. We do not nearly often enough look at a world in disrepair and weep and groan along with all of creation. We confess to you, God, that we are blinded by our comfort. ease of our lives, whispers, falsehoods in our ears which we are happy to believe. Now, God, I pray that You would open our eyes and break our hearts for these hundreds of children who do not have their mother and father. Children who By and large, had no choice in being brought here. And their only pillar of comfort, their parent, is nowhere to be found. God, help these children. You established and ordained the family. And we pray, O protector of the household that You would bring these households back together. Wherever they end up together, Father, we just pray that You will bring them back together. We pray, God, for the the minds and the hearts of these children who have been traumatized by this event that they do not understand. We pray that You would heal them, that You would send people to be agents of healing to them. We pray, God, for the hearts and minds of these parents who probably are weighed down by shame and guilt. Pray, Father, that You might heal them as well. Father, help us to know what to do. If nothing else, help us to remember to pray for them. Help us to know how to act. That we might bear Your name well, that we might be little Christs in this world. Help us to be caretakers and prophets. To call people to the true and living God whose character is ever the same and faithful. Break our hearts, God, for what breaks yours. Father, I pray that our hearts would would be open, our ears would be open to your word this morning. I pray, God, that you might pierce us and and shape us. Lord, Jesus, make us receptive to your self-disclosure and to take joy in knowing that you come after your people and explain yourself to us far more than we deserve. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us. Help us then to receive it as willing participants. I trust you in this, Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to finish our series on the search, Israel's search for a better king in Second Samuel 24. Um, this is... One book, as we talked about, First and, and 2 Samuel is really just one book that God divided up pretty much for scroll length, but it all goes together, 1 and 2 Samuel. And on top of that, 1 and 2 Samuel is, is really strongly thematically, linguistically connected to 1 and 2 Kings as well. So uh, if you turn the page from 2 Samuel and start going right into 1 Kings, David will still be there. Um, he just doesn't seem to die, even though we keep hearing his last words. And then there's okay, now it's the end of this book, but no, he's still there for a couple more chapters in the books of Kings. Um, but we're we're not gonna we're not gonna jump to that. In addition, First um, and Second Chronicles tells the story, the history of Israel's history. Um, from a different perspective and with different themes. First and second chronicles is actually chronologically the last book of the Old Testament. And uh, the Jewish ordering of their scriptures, we call it the Old Testament, they just call it the Testament. Um, they put the first and second Chronicles at the very end because it's chronologically the last thing that was written. Uh, and we're gonna in First Chronicles is all about David as well. So we haven't even covered all the David material. Um, There's a bunch of Psalms. There's 1 Kings. There's 1 Chronicles. And you can check all of that out yourself. We're going to end the books of Samuel and move on. And next week, we'll start a short series on the book of Proverbs as we go into the school year. Um, I just thought it would be nice to spend uh, five weeks looking at just some uh, biblical direction for life because we're about to kind of kick into life again. School year is starting. People's vacations are over by and large. Here we go into the school year. What does Scripture tell us about how our lives should be lived? And and Proverbs is a great place uh, to look at that. So we're in 2 Samuel 24. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's going to be up behind you. Uh, No, not behind you, behind me. You look this way or at your Bibles in your hands. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of my people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? The king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan and from Dan they went west toward Sidon and to the fortresses of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. They went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of the Lord. So the Lord sent a pestilence or plague on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, the north and south ends of Israel, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction amongst the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arauna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arauna went and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Araunah said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Araunah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes, the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Araunah gives to the king. And Araunah said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Araunah, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. And this is how the books of Samuel end. You know, we've talked many times about the way that the text will present the heroes of the story. And here the book is ending in this epilogue, after, after the real the ending of David's story and this ending section that gets attached on there. And the book can't end without telling us one more time has, how David has failed. You, you would think that the authors would at least end on a high note. In a sense, they do, but in a way that we would not expect or perhaps we should at this point. David's failure is the dominant image of this story. Now, it's kind of confusing how and why this is failure, because all he's doing is taking a census. Counting is not sinful. We are not, as a people, saying that math is evil. Although, if you are in school, you may feel that math is evil, and I'm with you, but it is not sinful inherently. There's nothing wrong with counting. And in fact, there are sections of the Bible where God commands the people to count, to take a census. So it's not that census taking in itself is bad. And and the text doesn't go out of its way to tell us why exactly this is wrong. But there are clues, there are hints in there. There is the language of plague and pestilence here. There are strong reverberations with the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt. If you read David's story and you see then the angel of the Lord with his arm outstretched, You should read that and think back to Israel's story in Egypt because that same angel of the Lord was there doing the same thing, extending its arm and bringing plagues and pestilence and judgment on Pharaoh. Now, there is established for us a figure for us to compare David to. Pharaoh of Egypt. Pharaoh's problem, if you get right down to it, is that he took the people of God and he used them for his own purposes as if they belonged to him. And the people of God do not belong to Pharaoh or anyone else. They belong to God. And in this story, David is doing the same thing. This is not a divinely ordered census. This is David choosing to muster His might and treat the people of Israel like they are His own. There's a further clue that this is what David is doing. If you look at the, the passage that immediately precedes this, the last few verses, is a, this whole section of chapter 23 is a, is a recounting of the mighty men of David. And I'm not going to read all of them because it's just a long list of names. But let me just read the last few verses. Egal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zalek, the Ammonite, Naharai, of Beirot, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerab, the Ithrite. And then verse 39... Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite is the last one in the list immediately before this story. If you don't remember, Uriah is the husband of Bathsheba, the woman who David takes as if she is his own. The text is not... This is not a coincidence. This is not a mistake. We're being clued in here to what David's sin is. He's doing this thing he has a tendency to do, a tendency we all have, which is to treat what is God's as if it is our own. He is grasping that power that is not his. And for that, he is judged. And not just Him, but the entire nation of Israel. And this is, this is exactly how sin works. Much of what you and I deal with when we wrestle against sin is this inward compulsion to grab for what is not ours. It is a desperate desire to, like our first parents, reach up and decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. It's not a mistake that the sin of coveting is in the Ten Commandments. If you read the Ten Commandments, it's kind of like, okay, murder, adultery, stealing, I get it. Pretty bad ones, those should be on the top ten. Coveting? Eh. Kind of seems... Light. But coveting is right at the middle of where we are. Coveting is at the middle of all those other ones. We are reminded at the end of the list of those ten that our appetites provide a way of destruction. Every time that you and I give ourselves over to the reckless pursuit of security, we are grasping for the power to make our lives safe and to control those around us. Every time that we wrestle against greed, that one's very clear. God has not given us all these other things. But we want them and we crave them. You struggle against sexual sin. You crave what is not yours. Intertwined in all of these ways that we stumble and fall is this sin of David. I will gather all the things that are not mine and treat them as they are. And what happens to David is that wreckage comes. And wreckage comes to you and I as well. The deception of sin is is maybe you're consumed with shame over what you have done. But maybe no one has to know. Maybe no one has to get hurt. But the truth is, Someone will always get hurt, and it is not just you. There is an explosive, destructive power to sin, because sin is hungry in its evil. It is not content to just consume you and in the inside, but it wants to consume you and your siblings and your spouse and your friends and your community. It is consuming all of creation. And you cannot throw yourself on top of that grenade and think that you will take the full force of its destruction. It will be you and those that you love. And here in this same story of David's, again, repeated failure, is this little glimpse of what makes David so special. Somehow, David gets called this man after God's own heart, like right before he does all this terrible stuff. And David is not a man after God's heart because he is so perpetually righteous. It's very clear the text has laid out for us. That is not David. But David immediately recognizes his own sin. He does not try to deflect, he does not try to mitigate. He does not try to reason God into saying this is an honest mistake. He's transgressed a little rule. Can't we just sweep this under the rug? He, sends, he says, I have sinned against you. Would you then, God, please dismiss my iniquity? He repents. David, what makes him special above anything else is this willingness to repent and to own what he has done that is evil. This is is really difficult, especially if you are like David in a position of power and influence. I'd say here there's an indication, a message for anybody who's in any position of leadership. David does not deflect and defer judgment and responsibility onto other people, but instead puts himself at the front of the line for judgment. He owns the mistakes that he has made entirely and completely. And if you are in a position of responsibility, what Scripture will again and again show as true and godly leadership is the willingness to step to the front of the line for criticism and for judgment, and then to step at the back of the line for honor and blessing. And if you are not willing to put yourself at the front of the line for judgment, you are not pursuing a biblical form of leadership. David puts himself in the front of the line. He says to God, oh God, please spare these people, these sheep. This is my sin. Bring your judgment on me. And notice, too, that God gives him three different options, three sets of three, three years of famine, three months of running from enemies, three days of pestilence. And David chooses the the shorter option. And you may be sitting there saying, well, of course, that makes sense. Why would you not choose the three-day thing? Well, here's the thing. In the ancient world, there is no defense for illness, There is no medicine to take. This is unmistakably deadly, what he chooses. And it is clear that it's deadly. 70,000 people die. But what David's reasoning is, is I would rather be in the hands of God than the hands of someone else. I will trust the one who judges me to also be the one to have mercy. So he casts himself into the hands of God trusting that this is actually a better place to be. If you are entangled and entrapped by sin, your your feeling will be to run away from God. Run away. Do not go near the one that makes you feel so icky and squirmy inside that makes you feel the weight of your shame. Get far away from that. Then get right, get cleaned up, and then come back. Now first of all, that's we know, hopefully, logically, that's silliness, that's nonsense. There's, there's no way that you could run and God won't be there already. So you're running from nothing. You're just, you're just running to the same place. That's all you're doing. But this is also not the nature and character of God. The resolution for sin is never to run away and fix yourself and then come to God. The resolution in the Old and the New Testament is the same. You actually go closer to where God is. And trust Him. Throw yourself into the hands of judgment and mercy at the same time. And trust that this is the best, the safest place for you to be. If you are entrapped and admired in sin, and you are hoping that you will just be safe Inside yourself, and that no one has to get hurt, no one has to know, and the shame of this thing can just be yours, and eventually you'll be better. That is not how this will go. You will see deliverance when you run to the throne of God, entrust yourself to his judgment and mercy, and you open up your life so that all the things that you're hiding in the darkness. Can be purified by the light of exposure. Now, then, there's this strange story of this transaction with this man. Now, the 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 name here is we're not sure if it's actually a name, a rouna, or if it's a title. It comes from a a pre-Hebrew language, and we're not sure how we're supposed to read it. This appears to be someone who's in charge of this area, this part of Jerusalem. He says it's a Jebusite, and if you didn't know, Jerusalem wasn't always named Jerusalem. It used to be called Jebus. Jebusites lived in Jebus. And he was in Jerusalem, and he had this threshing floor, and David seeks to to buy his threshing floor to establish an altar. And this, too, is is not happenstance. The, The books of Samuel opened up with the worship of Israel in disarray. Everything was messed up. The priests were not in good order. The Ark of the Covenant gets taken away. This is all in the first chapters of 1 Samuel. We talked about this a long time ago. And here we have the issue again at the end of the book, as a bookend, of the issue of Israel's worship. And David buys this threshing floor from this man, Araunah. There, there is a telling of this story in 1 Chronicles. In this version, in the chronicler's version of this story, they, they translate this name differently. Instead of Araunah, they, they call him Ornan. Then Ornan said to David, Take it and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into his sheath. The books of Samuel just tell you that the offering is offered and God accepts it. The chronicler offers the detail that God sends the fire as a sign of approval and to bless and to consecrate this place this site that David buys and builds this altar we'll find out in the books of chronicles becomes the place where Solomon's temple is built when the readers of the books of samuel come to the end of the books of samuel they see this story repaired in the beginning the worship of Israel was in disarray. At the end of the books of Samuel, the worship of Israel is properly established. Solomon's temple will be built here. Will rest here. And worship will proceed here with the blessing of God. This this is David who is embodying for us all of Israel. David is, is offering... The cost of the land, so that the right worship can be established. It is for us a a resolution to this overarching theme in the books of Samuel, that things are not right, that God is addressing. But on top of that, it shoots well forward. Because the son of David will do what David has done, but he will do it better. David is himself, by his own disobedience and his own grasping for power, a means by which pestilence, disease, and death comes into the people of Israel. But his son Jesus will come, having no part in the pestilence and the disease himself, but will act as if he is the one for, who is responsible for that disease. He will, he will say, bring the plague upon me. He will be like David, the leader, but he will be better at it than David ever was. He did not bring the pestilence, but he receives it into his own body. He throws himself on the altar. He purchases the land with a price, not gold or silver, but the price of his own life. So that the people of God may once again, finally and forever, have a place where they can worship God and know that they might be accepted. The difference between David's offering and Jesus' offering is not that there are two fires and one is larger than the other. The sign of approval at David was the fire falling from the sky, but the direction is different with this offering. The sign of the approval of God's, of God's approval for Jesus' offering is that he will come up out of the grave. David chooses pestilence for three days, and on the third day, Jesus will step out of the grave, forever breaking the hold of the plagues and the pharaohs that would possess the people of God. The better king is not on the text pages, he is looming over them, and you must look through them to see him rightly. David is not the better king, nor was Saul, nor will any other king that will come after them. The better king is the son of David, Jesus, who Himself does what the kings could not do so that you and I might meet with God forever. The same spot will one day experience a door being thrown open forever. When Jesus offers Himself on the altar to deal with the the pestilence that plagues His people, the robe, the veil that stands between God and His people is rent from top to bottom. So the threshing floor is then cast out to all of those who trust in the work of the King. The thing that is inside David is still inside all of us, that hunger for what is not ours. And and you may be right now thinking of a number of ways in which that hunger has consumed you this week, this month, this year, for a lifetime all the ways that you've been grasping at was not at what was not yours all the ways that you've been hungering and hungering and thinking that you are filling yourself but never actually experiencing fullness that is sin you are overreaching and you are living in plague But the cross stands in front of you. The altar of David stands in front of you with the approval, the sign of God's approval being Jesus standing triumphant over all the things that have dragged you down in plague. And you need Him all the time. If you feel like you are the worst sinner in the room, the person next to you, probably feels the same way. And all of the worst sinners in the room, all of us, will never stop needing our King to be our King on our behalf. If you are burdened with shame this morning, come to the cross. Come to Jesus. Let Him deliver you from the plague. Let Him deliver you from yourself. If you've come to this moment in a sermon a hundred thousand times and said, I have heard this a hundred thousand times, I know it's coming, and I'm just about to get up from my seat and go do what I've done every other one of those hundred thousand times, it's too many times I've said no. Today is the day for you, mercy is at your doorstep and you do not need to think that you are too far from it. Come and let this King be King for you and heal you from all your plagues. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, there is no one like You. There is no King like You there's no, there's no politician like you. There's, none of us have done your job very well. There is no one like you. You stand above all gods. You stand above even the great heroes of Scripture. You are so much better. God, we know that the plagues that are in our lives, we, they've been unleashed upon us by other sinful people, and we have unleashed plagues into the world ourselves. There is death all around us that we can't help but feel we deserve. Because we do. And yet you give mercy. You purchase what we could not purchase. You covenant yourself to us, your people. And we are so surprised by that again and again. Father, I pray for those of us in here who who know that, who, who lean on that. I pray, God, that we would never be lulled by familiarity. But we would again and again see the surprising goodness of the gospel. The King of Israel who lived died and was resurrected and our place has extended to us His life. Infinite joy. I pray God for everyone who is in here that has not tasted of that. Maybe not in a long time, maybe not ever. I pray God that this morning they will be unable to resist you. That you would be irresistibly good. And they would run to You like a thirsty man in the desert who finally sees an oasis. God, let them see that kindness and mercy is in Your hands, though they fear Your judgment. I thank You, Jesus, that You are the better King. You have proven Yourself to be so. And You remain committed to continually proving Yourself. Until we might believe. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.